Hey guys, Abel here. FYI, bullies in kindergarten used to call me Cable. But anyway, in this episode I'm bringing to you Mr. Mario Tomic. He's a big name amongst fitness YouTubers, he has a self-titled YouTube channel which is doing great and he puts out a lot of great fitness knowledge. He has a website called shockingfit.com where he publishes blog posts and also does online coaching for people. He's really big on the behavioral side of fitness and puts out a lot of great content on habits, habitary change, philosophies for success, and how all that relates to fitness, which made him a fantastic fit for my podcast as I share very similar interests. In this particular episode, we talked about a video series that he has been putting out lately on how to trick your brain to eat less which I've been very glad to see popping up on YouTube as this is really an aspect of nutrition which has been kind of neglected really, especially in the evidence-based fitness circles in the last couple of years. We always talk about macros and numbers and in our discussions we already kind of assume that people will be on point with their tracking methods, whereas this concept actually leaves avenues open for the possibility of perhaps not even tracking anything, but customizing your eating habits and food choices in a way that could actually allow you to naturally put yourself in a very solid calorie deficit without meticulously counting everything. As you know, your brain actually regulates how much you will eat based on a variety of factors, and it turns out it is far more complicated than just giving yourself the optimal number of calories and the right balance of macronutrients. It turns out that it is way, way more complex than that, and as you will see, it really is quite fascinating. And I must say, Mario has really been doing an excellent, excellent job at compiling all this. Why this podcast will be especially interesting for you to hear is because Mario is not only a scientifically minded person, but is someone who clearly walks the walk. I mean, look at the guy's physique. And since he's shredded himself, he's clearly personally invested in exploring this topic as much as possible. Anyway, I won't hype this podcast episode up even more. But the point is that I love this episode and I think my guest today was brilliant. He really was. So I hope you'll enjoy it and use the timestamps to navigate between topics we discussed. Although I do recommend that you listen to the whole thing because it's very informative. All right, let's see the interview. Mario Tomic is... Am I pronouncing That's it correctly? well pronounced, man. I, I'm un- unbelievably humble that you know how to pronounce that. <laughs> it's actually quite hard for most uh, Americans, I guess. Um, they they usually pronounce it Tomic. <laughs> yeah, I mean Americans don't really care. Like they even the mo- the nicest people just butcher the hell out of every name. So that's that's no surprise. Yeah, so um, let's um, let's give a little bit of introduction for those people who may not be familiar with y- your work, um, what you do, and what is your main occupation. And yeah, let's give some intro. All right. So currently, what I'm doing is I'm an online coach. So I specialize in fitness, nutrition, and uh, as well as personal development, as well as habit change, which is something that. I think it's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle in a lot of these things that uh, we love to argue what's the best uh, way to, I don't know, get shredded, what's, is it low carb, high carb, what is like the nuanced uh, difference of like 1%. Uh, we missed the picture of behavior change, so that's something I as well focus on a lot. Uh, my background actually has no, almost nothing to do with fitness. Um, I have a master's in computing, which does help me a little bit with statistics and does help me with uh, looking at the research and gave me that, I guess, that scientific mindset where I'm not looking at 
uh, one thing and jump on it and say, okay, this is the ultimate solution, one size fits all. It's more like, okay, let's let's look at the, the bigger picture and where do these old studies really, how do they correlate to each other and try to find a holistic approach that might work. So how did I get into all of this? Well, I was a pretty overweight guy back in college. Uh, I actually used to play soccer before that. And I experienced in my own skin what it feels like to get out of um, an active lifestyle and go into a sedentary lifestyle. I, I basically changed in college from uh, like an active soccer guy in, in high school to a World of Warcraft player in, in college, right? So it's That's like... sport. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a drop of energy expenditure to, to practice zero. I was uh, consuming an enormous amount of processed foods. And I, I think actually... The, the amount of overfeeding that I did on myself, I think I'm pretty good. You know, I didn't gain that much weight. I was only about uh, 10 kilos, so that's for Americans about 20, 22, 25 pounds off of my normal weight, which with enormous amount of overfeeding still wasn't uh, that much. Although I was, I mean, my amount of visceral fat that I had was a lot, so I had a huge belly um, because of the lack of activity. And... Um, when I finished college, I graduated, I got my master's, and I said, okay, well, I got into personal development a little bit. I got into Anthony Robbins, and um, still nothing related to fitness. But then I figured, well, look, I mean, fitness seems to be the thing that Anthony is doing as well. You know, it seems to play a big role in our lives. And uh, then I started basically, okay, which area of my life do I want to work on the first? And health was that. And then I started going to the gym. I actually want partnered up with some of my buddies from World of Warcraft, and one of them happened to be into gym as well, and he recommended me a, a weird book back in the day, something like Starting Strength, but it was more simplistic mm -hmm. in creation, and um, I just started with that, you know, I just started doing that, and uh, I find myself um, since then that I caught this bug that I can't, uh, can't <laughs> eliminate anyway, so I'm very fascinated by health, I'm very fascinated by behavior change, um, whether you want to get shredded, or whether you want to lose just 50 pounds to get to normal weight, it's still pretty much similar challenges, right, depending where you start from. And I think that the journey is, is very, very unique and challenging for everybody. And as, as someone who has been through a lot of these uh, cuts and, and quote-unquote bulks and work with, I guess, more than 100 clients right now, I can see how unique everybody handles these things. And that's, um, that's something that we, we need to look into more of uh, how to customize, how to individualize, how to make something that, that will actually fit the individual, which is, which is a huge aspect. I think that's a little bit missing in the, I guess, marketing world of fitness where it's like, okay, intimate is the ultimate solution. You, know, you just skip breakfast, you're going to get shredded. No, it's... Uh, it might work for some people, might work for some like it, It's such a, if you look at the average value, if you look at the mean value, it often tells you nothing what really is behind the scenes. And um, that's where I'm basing most of my work on is really trying to individualize as much as possible. Awesome. It's interesting, right? Like uh, how you get the fitness bug and then you all of a sudden go from couch potato to not only wanting to change your own body, but all of a sudden wanting to basically transform the world. I, I know how that feels and uh, it, it's awesome for you that now you're coaching people. So how long have you been into fitness by the time you actually made the decision to turn this into a career for yourself? I, practically four years, 
uh, it took me four years of, uh, I, I guess, first training myself, then trying to train my friends, then actually succeeding with training some of my friends. And, uh, and I was also working online for a very long time as a freelancer. And uh, I just figured, well, I mean, I have this fitness thing that I'm extremely passionate about. And I can make a difference because during my freelancing years, I learned a lot of marketing. I learned a lot of uh, how to make an online presence, uh, the power of YouTube, the power of social media. And I figured, well, why don't I just ditch this thing that I'm actually doing just for money? You know, it's not a passion at all, and try to do that, uh, apply those skills in fitness. And that's what I'm doing right now. Just, um, my YouTube channel is uh, is my main, I guess, um, presence in social media. I mean, I'm also active on on Facebook, on Instagram. Pretty much everywhere, right? If you're not active on social media, I don't exist. So <laughs> the, the goal is to um, to bridge the gap between scientific research and what people look for on YouTube, and that's um, something that I think there's this uh, whole debate now and this whole war going on between like, okay, these are the evidence-based research guys. We always talk about could have, probably, maybe, versus guys who are like. Uh, uh, looking for a concrete solution, which is more like general population, and there's this whole gap between. So we need to fill that gap to actually introduce these um, the people who need these solutions, and in a, in a clever way, right? So that's something that I'm trying to, I, I guess, uh, do right now and tackle the whole issue. And um, that that's the primary goal, I would say, that um, use the cutting edge research to change lives. Right. Right. Um, and, and first of all, I hope Cal Newport didn't hear you say if you, you're not on social media, you don't exist. <laughs> don't don't let him hear that. Uh, I'm I'm being very impressed with your YouTube videos because, like you said, you're presenting very research-based principles in a very easily to consume format. And, and many times, I'm just having my dinner and listening to it, and like, wow, wow, like value, value, value. The theme of of this discussion today is um, is a series of a video series that you've been putting out on YouTube lately and that's been also been very interesting and it is how to trick your brain to eat less so um, first let's just give some background I guess when did you start researching this topic and um, yeah what inspired well what inspired the topic is that every single uh, coach and every single person that I actually spoke to isn't even a coach they all know what to do like everybody knows what to do you need to eat less calories, you need to move more, you know, you need to be more active if you want to lose weight. And um, we know that the energy balance equation is much more complicated than that, but it's still at the same time, it's very simple. But the issue is that we're dealing with uh, millions of years of evolution here, and that's the problem. And as human beings, I mean, at least in our last couple of uh, hundred years, we've engineered an environment that actually goes against a lot of those that tens of thousands of years of evolution, at least from the from the last stage of Homo sapiens, right? So we're dealing with things that our brain isn't wired for. Our brain isn't wired for just telling ourselves we're just going to eat a little bit less. We're actually fighting a lot of these things. And uh, I, I was looking for, well, what could we do to automate the process, right? What could we do to make that calorie deficit easier? And the problem with, with just saying, well, you need to track your calories or, or just uh, count every gram, that works for some people. Some people have amazing results with tracking. I mean, I'm personally on my fitness pal for the last, I believe, almost 700 days, right? You can backlog my diet from like more than a year ago. But working with a lot of clients, as I said before, 
for most people, this isn't the most optimal approach. Maybe for the short term, just to educate themselves on calorie amounts, but still, once you uh, quote unquote release yourself in the real world, uh, where you're faced with all these obstacles, you have no idea about portion sizes. You're you're literally uh, fooled by the the size of the plate and the meal on the plate, and you think that you ate this many calories, is is you haven't, and um, that inspired me to really look at okay. What does the research say? What are some of these things that we can actually do in our environment and in our mindset that will allow us to stick to that that easier? So I started off with simple stuff. I just started looking at um, the effects of um, sensory-specific satiety, which essentially means that, let's say, you uh, are eating one certain food like chocolate and then you get bored of it all of a sudden. So I was like fascinated. Well, why do we get bored with that? You know, like what's happening here? It's chocolate. You know, why doesn't it taste as good? After the one after one bar, as much as it just for the first bite, then I realized we have these mechanisms that we don't really understand, right? And that's our that we're engineered not to we're engineered to seek variety, not to eat the same food for evolutionary purposes. But we don't know that, like most people don't know that. But funny enough, the food environment knows that. The companies actually do know that that produce food because when you're faced with a if you go to a restaurant, you'll see that there's an enormous amount of variety within one meal that literally can allow you to eat that meal for the, rest, like, for the whole day until you feel full. And then the only thing that you have is actually how full your stomach is. It's kind of not, not the best signal out there if you're looking for the calorie amount because you can stuff uh, an enormous amount of calories before you actually get that signal. So that, that's one of the examples of the things that I've, that I've researched in the the last couple of, um, I, I guess, weeks, more like a month uh, by now, that um, play a huge role. And we can start from the top to, to really go uh, into some of these. And, and I'm still not done with the research. It's incredible how deep this rabbit hole is um, with these things that we can do. But essentially, right. it's how do you stay in a calorie deficit easier? You know, like, how do you stay there? That, that's it. And this applies for someone who wants to get shredded, so I have someone who has like 100 pounds to lose. We were all facing that uh, deficit, one way or the other. Right. And so first, let's just, um, I guess, tackle a question which may pop up in the heads of many people who are listening to this. So let's say there is a, a hardcore, if it fits your macros, or even just a hardcore macro tracker, like you said, you track your food for the last since you were born. <laughs> and uh, so so someone who, who is good at macro tracking might say, well, what's the point of tricking my brain? I can just track my macros. Um, what would be the response to, to this? Yeah, so saying to someone, let, let's, let's take it from two angles, right? Let's say that person who is really good at tracking wants to teach that to someone else. Let's say you're a coach and you just take someone from the street and you tell them, hey, man, it's super simple to get ripped. You just have to install MyFitnessPal, here's the macros, and you just do that. If you tell that person from the street that they're going to absolutely have no way to know where to start and they're going to get paralyzed, they're not going to take action, it's going to sound too complicated, they're just going to give it up, right? So number one, you have to be able to uh, meet the person where, where they're at if you're a coach, right, and meet yourself where you're at. So if you have zero skill to actually do something like tracking your calories and macros, which means that let's say you were a bro who was following a meal plan all his life, it actually takes a while for you to, to transition into that. So you want to babysit that process, and during that process of babysitting and learning, you want to conserve as much willpower and as, spend as little energy as possible while you're still getting to your goal. And that brings me to the second point, which is if you just tell someone, well, 
why don't I just track and eat 50 different foods all day? Well, if you ever done that, you know that how much energy that really takes. Even if you've been using MyFitnessPal every single day or in any, any other app, I, it seems like I'm promoting MyFitnessPal just because it's very popular, but any other app takes an enormous amount of energy and willpower and actual focus to do this, to break down a meal in a restaurant, especially if you eat out. It's incredibly hard. And if you can do anything else that will make this process easier, I mean, it doesn't make sense not to do that. Because you have other things in your life to do. I mean, I'm assuming that you're not just in this to become a macro tracker. You also have your work, your passion, you have your relationships with people, and um, you can literally save yourself uh, an enormous amount of willpower and mental energy and make less decisions per day, which is a, which is a really uh, interesting concept of decision fatigue. The less decisions you make per day, the more of that energy you can actually dedicate and move toward uh, things that truly matter. And um, those, that decision fatigue actually can make you make poor decisions at the end of the day, which is where often people blow their diets because they've, let's say you track three meals and the fourth meal you're like, oh, screw this thing. You know, I've already tracked everything and today. And then the fourth meal, you skip it and that meal actually adds that unnecessary amount of calories. And um, I mean, it's managing your energy at, at the end of the day, right? Is this the most important thing that you have going on for you right now? Or is this something that is... That, that is just a tool for you to get to a result and also make you a more purposeful person who actually has some higher things to do in your life. Absolutely. And, and, and even, I mean, for example, I noticed that let's say I have a huge cheat meal or, you know, just massively overeat on one day and the next day I would be like, okay, I'm going to cut for a couple of days. If I actually don't track those meals, but but actually focus on 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 the things that we will uh, explore in this this episode, then actually I notice that I end up eating a lot less because obviously I'm not hungry because of the previous day than if I was to purposefully eat I don't know two thousand calories or whatever. But if I was to consciously put myself at fifteen hundred calories or whatever, then I would overthink the whole thing and like oh my god it's so low calorie. But if, I, if I'm just being mindful and focusing on these things, that it happens automatically. There, there's actually a lot of um, things at play there. Uh, it's the whole dynamic of scarcity versus abundance. If you're looking at, oh, I have only 1,500 calories today, or let's say you have even 2,000 calories, it all of a sudden is more appealing to go over those calories because they're in scarcity. And whatever is in scarcity, you're like, okay, that must be valuable. Like if I tell you don't eat a pizza, that's the only thing you're going to think about, right? It's like not allowed. It's forbidden. And it must have something, some value attached to it. And that's a huge issue with, uh, with generally thinking about calories. No matter how many calories I have, I mean, currently I'm eating 3,000 calories. I'm still at the end of it. I'm like, oh, damn it. I wish I had 3,500. You know, I wish I had a little bit more, you know. And you're always thinking because you're coming from that place of uh, not being objective. I mean, it's impossible to be objective with these things. I mean, we're talking about food and one day you're object the next day you're not but i mean it's uh, it, it's just the way it is right? right yeah that's why that's why it's tricking your brain into eating less than not your body so let's uh, let's go through some of the strategies um we can go in any kind of order um which one do you think we should pick first yeah i mean we can start with the simple stuff uh let's say a very simple uh study that we want to look at as uh, how people perceive exercise. 
right? So when they did this, I believe this was Brian Wonsing study who you're going to see that name pop up in, in these um, studies a lot. He's uh, from Cornell University, he has two books, Mindful, uh, Mindless Eating and uh, Slim by Design. So he's all about becoming more mindful, aware of these situations in our lives. So what he did is basically they took, I believe they took about 56 adults and they, they just told them, hey, let's do a two kilometer walk, right? As you do a walk and they told one group, this walk was an exercise walk. We, we deliberately went to do this walk to burn some calories. They told the other group, well, this is just a walk for, for fun. You know, let's do some selfies. Uh, let's, let's just chill out. And um, what happened in the end is people who were actually uh, perceiving the walk as exercise ate a lot more of that dessert that they gave at, at lunch when they had the ad libitum situation. So we're talking about a situation where people are not tracking their calories. Um, they ate a lot more because of that compensatory response as they were thinking, well, I deserve more, right? I deserve more of this. And then in the second part of the study as well, when they figured out how much people snack throughout the day, they found people who thought that they exercised, they snacked a lot more on M&Ms. I think there was like even a 124% increase in the amount of M&Ms they would eat, right? So. When we're looking at this simple study here is like, oh man, it doesn't make a difference if I think the gym, gym is hard, if it's a chore or whether it's fun. It actually does make a lot of difference in the compensatory response you get. And I'm pretty sure anybody who's ever exercised, that day that you felt that you really done a lot of work, you had a hard time later on not compensating. Right? You had to expend an enormous amount of willpower to control yourself because you thought like, oh man, I was just like, it was such a hard day. You know, I hit my PR today. And I deserve to eat a lot more. And if you look at the actual cal calorie expenditure, if we're looking just at strength training, we're not talking about a lot of calories. You know, even if, I mean, even if you do an enormous amount of volume, it's still not that many calories in terms of how much you can actually eat in one meal. So this is a big thing is just framing exercise in your mind and being aware of this. I think awareness is even the bigger issue here is that just being aware that your brain will feed you certain uh, impulses. And once you're aware of it, you can be like, oh, well, oh, yeah, okay, I fr uh, that's, that's it. My brain wants to compensate. Right? You know of it because obviously you can um, look at it from like kind of more objective stance once you are familiar with the research. So that's one of the goals here is just become more aware of these things, which we're going to go more into. And framing physical exercise is really one of those fundamental things is that, that could influence us. Right? Yeah, I, I, and, and it's funny because even being aware of this research, or I, I've heard this study, I think actually it was from Berge Fagerli when I interviewed him. I think he mentioned something similar. And I think, and, it, and it's crazy that I went on a walk the other day. And before that, I used to do that walk all the time with my dog. And now I just went for basically as a form of cardio. And I was looking at my little step counter thing. And the experience, how different it was, it was unbelievable. Like every every time I was looking at like, okay, two more steps in the bank. Exactly. Like, yeah. Every, I've been yeah. there so many times. I'm like, okay, my Samsung phone has 7,000 steps as a goal. I got to get those 7,000. I, I would even go out in the middle of the night to get the extra two, like, two, <laughs> like 200 or something steps that I need to reach my goal. And uh, it, it's interesting, you know, it's just interesting how this affects us and um, in, in so many different ways. And um, yeah, uh, if you want, we can, we can move on to a, to a second one, which I think is even a bigger problem in today's world. Um, yeah. We're talking about mindful eating, right? So yeah. 
a lot of people, including myself, we have our smartphone right next to our meal. We have our phone um, somewhere in, in, in arm's reach. It's really rare to find someone in today's world that has their phone <laughs> further away from them. Or at least we have our laptops. We have watched YouTube while we're uh, consuming food. Right? A lot of people that actually, when I post this video about uh, mindful eating, they told me, oh, I don't want to watch the videos because <laughs> I used to watch them when I was eating food. <laughs> and, um, there's actually a really cool review paper from 2012 that um, I think it's American uh, Journal of Clinical Nutrition, where they looked at what happens when people watch TV because they use TV as, as a measurement, which is more common in general population. Um, what happens when you do watch TV and uh, eat food? Well, number one, you eat more food, which is kind of obvious, right? You're going to eat more because you're distracted. You're, you don't know what's going on because you eat faster and, and you, you just don't know what, what's going on there. But the second finding was even more interesting is that people felt hungrier faster. <laughs> that, that is, that is the, like, we're, it's incredible. Like when we're mindful, we eat less afterwards. It's as if we don't remember how much we ate if we're distracted, which kind of uh, skews our perception of how much we need to eat for the rest of the day. And that is even more fascinating than actually being distracted in that single meal, right? Because that single meal, I mean, doesn't matter as much. But if you just go through it and you just wolf through the meal in two minutes, which is something I've done a billion times, especially on a diet, I, I at least anecdotally from my own perception, at least looking at this review, uh, there seems to be an effect on consecutive meals throughout the day where people would uh, compensate, would eat more because they don't even remember what's going on. Right? And this mindfulness is, is, is an incredible topic that we can dive into. Uh, it's a whole webinar on that if you, if you want to do that. But the, mm -hmm. how mindfulness affects what, what we're actually doing in today's world. And, and literally, I mean, uh, most people don't even know how their food tastes and smells. Ask people. I mean, they just go through the meal like, bam. You know, they don't even know what's going on, and and that's that's a huge thing. I mean, we're going back at like that. Uh, we want the hedonistic value, but we don't even go for it. Right? We don't even enjoy the meal, but we want it. We want it in our minds, but we when when we're given the situation, we we literally don't uh, don't do that. So some things that you can actually do to combat this and to slow it down. As um, you know, that even the, the, the response that you get from your gut to your brain takes a while to, to reach. So if you're on a diet, for example, if you're eating a smaller meal, it might make sense to actually wait for that, to eat slower, to actually get those signals to fully. I mean, so it, it's very individual. Some people will, will get there faster than others. Some, it, some take like 20 minutes for the gut signal to actually reach the brain. So um, as you're eating slower, there are certain things you can do is, let's say you eat with your non-dominant hand, if you're right-handed, you eat with your left hand, which automatically slows you down. Um, you can count your bites, like how many bites you had. You can use smaller forks, spoons. Um, you can actually like just not put your phone nearby and eat yeah. somewhere in an environment where there's just food and you're in your thoughts. Um, yeah, literally, you can just pay attention to the food and use it as meditation, which is something that I do. Right. Every meal is like my little meditation session. It, it's kind of crazy, but and I know it's a little bit off, but um, I, li I like to practice my focus. Right. Yeah. I, I'm training my focus, and I figured if I eat at the same time and watch my phone and my laptop and all these things, I'm training my brain to be like that in other situations. So it's not just about that meal, but you're literally training a pattern, a behavior that is going to be repeated afterwards when you want to focus. 
So you want to take every chance that you have throughout the day to practice your focus. And that's going to translate to your productivity, to general happiness, which is linked to productivity in, in a way. And um, overall, it's going to make you a happier person, right? Because you're not going to be rushing all the time. And that's, uh, that's a huge issue. Right. And, and it's crazy because there is so much... There, there are so many things that improve if you become so if you become more mindful like this being distracted all the time and so fragmented it, it just impacts so many things and and I've definitely noticed that before even during a bulk when I'm, I'm eating a lot of food but I'm playing around with YouTube and whatever like at the end of the meal I'm like did this meal even happen like I feel my stro- stomach being stretched but I didn't even enjoy this it's it's crazy now what did, what, what did you find what did you find though with, for example, just listening to something and, and not being looking away, just looking at your food? Here's the thing, right? Uh, multitasking is a myth, right? It is a myth, but it, it, it is also possible in a way to do it in, um, in a more clever way, right? So there's the multitasking things that you literally uh, can't do at the same time. So me and you, at, at the time of this conversation, for example, we couldn't be writing an article at the same time as doing this. There's yeah. no way our brains would have that amount of, of energy and focus to be able to do this at the same time. I found that listening to, to like, uh, let's say music is possible and doing that, but listening to an actual podcast and educating yourself where you actually need to think about the information and how you would apply the information, how would you teach the information to someone else, that that's a trick how you can use to retain information better. It, it's still not possible to actually feel the meal, but you can slow it down. So in a way, listening to a podcast and, and thinking about the podcast, you can actually eat, eat slower. So there is some benefit. I mean, it's not that bad. But I, again, I would say that literally take that 10 minutes off the podcast. No, not a big deal. While you're cooking, you can listen to a podcast. But while you're eating, it's probably a better idea if you're on a diet to, to just focus on the meal and try to get as much of meal out, out, of, out of that taste out of it as possible. And, um, and then resume your podcast. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it is something I'm guilty of as well. I know that we, we crave for knowledge, but, but think about it really. How much of that knowledge do you really retain when you're trying to do all these things at once? And yeah. while you're cooking, because it's an automated behavior, you probably cook a billion times. While you're cleaning your house, you can listen to a podcast. While you're walking your dog, you can do that. Automated behaviors that don't require any attention, you can definitely multitask multiple things, I mean, easily. But in a behavior that actually requires attention in two ways, it's extremely hard. It's very, very difficult, right? Because your, your cognitive um, ability to basically be in flow in, for two things at once is impossible, right? Like yeah. You, you yeah. can't, right? You just... Yeah, yeah and, and, and also, um, I guess if you're having like YouTube and podcasts and this and that, then you're kind of training yourself to perceive that meal as this hugely rewarding big celebratory, whatever. And that, again, trains you into like being kind of food obsessed, which when you're dieting, that's kind of an issue to begin with. So yeah, you're, you're kind of conditioning yourself. Again, you're conditioning yourself. You always want to look at that everything you're doing, you're conditioning yourself for a behavior that is if you repeat it enough, you actually turn that behavior into a habit. So how effective that is, and that's something that we can go into a little bit later. How how can you condition yourself out of certain things that are potentially harming you, which is definitely browsing through Facebook newsfeed and eating food at the same time. I mean, that's oh. something that an Instagram and, and Snap and, and all these other 
<laughs> sources, right? Yeah, so yeah. All right. Uh, let's let's go to the next point then. Um, yeah, which... I mean, the next point uh, I believe we touched a little bit on sensory-specific satiety. Um, basically, what we're dealing with here is that uh, effect of uh, habituation, where you're eating a certain food and it's giving you stimulants, but you get used to it over time. So that is the uh, same, let's say you move from a small city to New York and you hear all these noises, all of a sudden it's like overstimulating you, but eventually you get used to it, right? You, you, you habituate. And this is, I mean, not just for humans, this happens on, on animals as well. Even the most pr primitive forms of uh, organisms have this response where if you poke the animal enough times, it's going to become immune to that. So it's going to have the same reaction. And for us, uh, the problem with sensory specific satiety is that uh, in today's world, let's say you're, you're eating out or you're actually ordering out or you just have a billion different things where you can combine meals, it, it skews your perception of, uh, of satiety, right? You feel like you're, you're not eating enough. And uh, when, when you look at classic studies, I mean, from the 80s, when they, when they look at what happens if you release people to a buffet, None of these foods at the buffet are particularly tasty, and, and they're not. Like, right. if you look at a buffet and if you look at all the foods, they're, they're all average. You know, none of them are pretty mm -hmm. good. But people eat an enormous amount of food at a buffet. I believe it's like 40 to 50% overall increase on average. You know, that means that some people really pig out if you, yeah. if you let them loose on a buffet. And, and it's ridiculous um, how when we perceive that variety, it instantly adds to the food reward. Right, it adds to the value of the food. And that's a huge thing with sensory specific satiety we want to understand is that we can use this for our advantage. Right? We can uh, introduce dietary variety with certain things that we want to eat more of, such as vegetables, such as fruits, such as unprocessed whole healthy stuff, and reduce variety in terms of things that are very calorie dense and processed and highly palatable. So if you're actually eating chocolate in your diet, it's probably not a good idea to have five types of chocolate or, or 16 different flavors of ice cream. It's probably a good idea to just stick with one so you get satiated with that faster and have a variety of vegetables if your issue is getting that vegetable in, like that, that amount of vegetable that you need to eat. And that's, that's a trick that you can literally use and apply for yourself. And uh, the sensory specific of that is, is a fascinating thing because even adding a small variation within a food, even adding, let's say people get full of french fries and they did this, uh, at a, uh, I think the French study, um, they, they, they added a bunch of french fries to people and they, they were just eating those french fries and they just added a little bit of ketchup to that and people will continue eating, right? After they were full, after they told everybody, well, it's full. Um, the same thing you can see in, let's say, holidays at home. You have like, you know, Christmas or like, I don't know, Thanksgiving or something like that, and uh, you really get sick of eating, but then someone said, oh, it's this new dessert that you have to try out, and there's always room for that dessert. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a new uh, sensory stimulus, a new taste, and um, we can, I mean, we're going to go into full food palatability and, and reward uh, afterwards, which is a huge portion of this, but we don't know how to deal with variety. That's a fact. Like, our brains are not wired to deal with food variety. That, that's it, right? We can't cope with that. Yeah, and, and even like when you're on diet and, and on very low calories, like you even have to watch out for things like, let's say you eat a big salad with vegetables and, and salty spices, and then you eat apples. Like I basically, I will start eating those apples after the salty salad as if I didn't eat anything before that. 
Whereas before that, I was pretty satiated, but then I start eating that sweet apple and I'm like, oh, wow, I can eat 10 of these, like as if nothing happened before. It's crazy. Yeah. And anecdotally, if you look at, let's say what um, the, the emperors used to do with their like 12 course meals, if you look at, you can, you can do a Wikipedia search for this and just find a 12 course or 16 course meal for like a French king or something like that. And you would see how clever people were, even back then with absolutely no research, at combining different tastes to allow people to consume an enormous amount of food. So they literally had to just change the taste to sour, sweet, salty uh, combinations that they would just keep piling on food. And people would eat an enormous amount of food. I mean, a 12-course meal is, is six hours of eating, right? And yeah. um, it, that's thousands of calories. And uh, with dieting, uh, the, the way you could look at this is that you could reduce the variety in scope of a meal, but preserve variety in scope of a day. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you have three, four meals a day, you can actually introduce that apple, let's say, in the next meal, but stick to a more a blander meal when you're consuming that one, let's say, that, that one source of carbohydrate or two sources of carbohydrate within a meal. So that, that's kind of uh, how you can transition more from uh, – a uh, high food reward situation to a lower food reward situation, which is going to make dieting a little bit easier. Because if, yeah. if, if I have chocolate, if I have apples, if I have a banana, if I have, uh, if I have like a creamy sauce, if I have caramel with that, and, and also like an artificially sweet yogurt, plus my protein source, I'm going to be able to eat that. I'm not going to even feel full. Because yeah. it's so many different things that what, what, what just happened, you know, a thousand calories, I don't feel full. Well, if I just stick to a little bit blander combination and then introduce right in the next meal, then we actually can take advantage of this. Right. And, and, and to just give a heads up for people, if you're really insistent on mixing different flavors in one food, then in my experience, at least eat the sweet food first and then eat the salty, then it tends to work out still a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's things that you can do there is like which ones you're going to eat first. And there's been some research. Uh, I believe they did a study in restaurants, dessert first, and people would eat less. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where the paper is, but uh, someone was uh, someone was researching that, I believe. It's going to be a topic for, for a video for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Then let's get into food palatability since you already mentioned that. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, palatability. What is it? when the food is yummy, when the food is tasty, when the food is irresistible. And there are certain factors at play here. And we know that uh, the food industry and the companies have pretty much uh, mastered this process of uh, creating foods that we just can't resist, that we cannot stop eating. And uh, this is also referred to as a concept of food reward. And uh, the whole idea of food reward being one of the major causes of obesity um, the guy that really inspired me to research this is called Stephen Guiné. He's mm -hmm. an obesity researcher from, uh, I believe, he's in the Washington state. Um, he's uh, very, I mean, among the obesity researchers, one that has the most, uh, I would say, uh, overall uh, really big overview of obesity that I agree with because he's looking at, okay, it is the energy balance, it is the calories in and calories out, but what is the other factors that we are missing here, like what's actually getting people to overeat calories. And it's not the sugar. I mean, he was the first one who actually pointed out that, that sugar consumption actually declined in the last couple of years compared to like all the, the low-carb uh, craze going on out there. And um, things like the insulin obesity hypothesis, he was one of the first ones who said, okay, this is just a bunch of nonsense. I mean, insulin is 
nowhere to nowhere near to blame for for all these things and um, he had a little clash with a uh, Ludwig and and uh, Gary Tobbs went and, and at some point so going back at palatability and food reward why is this an issue right so certain combinations of uh, specific three ingredients sugar fat and salt can create something called a, a bliss point in in the, in a food taste right a bliss point is a point where you have the perfect mix of salt, sugar, and fat that is in a particular flavor and texture that is literally a food that you can eat forever, right? You can eat that food until your stomach is full, until you throw up. And uh, the problem with this is, though, let's say you have an 800-calorie diet, which is not uncommon, and you're doing four or five sessions of cardio a week, which is definitely something a lot of people do. Um, you will literally never feel full, like, on these foods. And if you base your food if you base your diet 60% on these kind of foods, which I see a lot of people still doing and highly processed foods, there's no way for you to stick to that diet long term. I, I mean, think about the, how hard would it be to just stop yourself eating all the time. Like you just have to spend an enormous amount of willpower and eventually that's going to lead into that um, cycle of where you're just going to binge, where you're going to drop the diet and you're going to say, okay, this is unsustainable. And the only way to actually get out of that cycle is to reduce a little bit of the food reward value that you get from food. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not a proponent of just eat chicken, broccoli, rice all the time. But there is something about this a bland approach that allows people to stick to it easier. And that's kind of what inspired me to look at this in the first place. I was like, okay, these bodybuilders obviously are doing something wrong because they're nutrient deficient. They're doing a lot of things wrong. But there's something we can learn from that is why is it so easy for them to stick to this diet when it's so bland? What's going on here? And that led me to a research uh, paper from the 60s where they fed people a bland liquid diet, literally diet with no taste. And um, people would just naturally eat less calories. And they would naturally eat a lot less calories even though we could argue that their body fat set point was a lot higher. Like They, they were mm -hmm. fighting a higher set point but somehow – that a blander diet managed to reduce their set point level so their body didn't fight back as much to the calorie deficit, right? So that, that kind of inspired me. Well, well, we're not talking about set points in general. It's a settling point, right? It can move, and there's been some research on that. If you stick to the same amount of uh, body fat uh, level range, you can, you can mitigate that and lower it over, let's say, a period of a year. Um, that's at least from what I've seen. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld was linking to a certain study um, uh, related to hunger signaling, so if you stick to let's say 12% body fat, even though your set point was 12%, uh, 15%, you will be able to maintain that 12% if you were there for a year, right, or longer. So it takes a while, but with the bland liquid diet, I mean, they managed to do the same thing within months, which is ridiculous, yeah. right? I mean, imagine that if you just uh, even an obese person, if you just put them in an environment where the diet is blander, less tasty, less palatable. They're not going to eat as much, even if you don't control their calories, right? Okay. So it, it kind of brought it like kind of inspiration. Well, look, I mean, what if we do a little bit blander in terms of the calorie dense side of the diet and a little bit more variety in terms of the calorie um, less density uh, food sources such as vegetables? And that way we can inspire people to reduce that set point. We have a less of a, that fighting back. I mean, response with your set point, which you want to get back to your body fat as you're, as you're going down. So it's kind of an interesting point that I'm still doing research on, 
I mean, this is something that there's not a lot of studies on this. I mean, there's a lot of rat studies on um, when they feed them a variety of uh, different types of chows and certain, there was a cafeteria diet study where they gave rats uh, and they, they, they got fat really fast. Um, there, there's an interesting study with a, with a vending machine from um, Eric Ravison in the beginning of the 90s where he took, uh, which took 10 lean men and gave them uh, access to, uh, to this vending machine that had a lot of food variety and a, an extreme amount of calorie dense and highly palatable foods. These guys gained like I don't know, five pounds in a week, right? And even though they, they, they were lean and they had pretty decent um, diets beforehand, right? So if you put people in an environment where they have access to highly palatable foods, it, it is extremely difficult to say no to these foods. And I can I mean, say from personal experience, if I, have, if I have ice cream in my fridge, man, I'm going to eat that ice cream. Like right. literally, there's no way I'm going to not eat that ice cream. It's not going to happen today or now or, or this time. But I know eventually I'm going to reach a point where my willpower is going to be low. I made so many decisions that day. I, I did a good workout, and I'm going to combine that low willpower with a compensatory response, and I'm going to eat that ice cream. Right? And I'm oh. going to justify it some way. Oh, I fit it into my macros or whatever, but I'm still going to eat that ice cream. Right? It's going to make me overeat in most cases. So um, palatability and food reward is a huge, is a huge issue um, in today's society. I, I mean, that's one of the things that it's so difficult to stop eating. Uh, food. It's literally, how, how do you stop eating, right? And if you look at uh, one final point that I want to make here is that if you look at blue zone diets, I mean, blue zone is a concept of uh, the five places in the in, on the planet where people live the longest and the healthiest and the most active lives. So let's say if you go to Okinawa, uh, it's not uncommon to I don't know, meet a 98-year-old granny carrying her groceries from the store back to the house. If you go to the UK, you're going to see someone... Um, like at Whole Foods, and they're going to be, I don't know, 60 years old, and they're already on 15 different types of medication. They, they have five sticks to help them walk and things like that. And, and this person here is like three years older and still doing these things and gardening and all these things. And if you look at their diets, traditionally, they're pretty bland diets. You know, they had a couple of staple foods, and they had some variety, but it's not that it's not a high food reward situation. There, there's not a lot of combinations of, of uh, sugar, fat, and salt at the same time, which would make them overeat. And none of these people ever know about what calories are or whatever. You know, that's, uh, that, that, that's uh, out of the question. You know, they're just um, traditionally yeah. eating that. Yeah, and, I mean, and that's, why, that's why it's so mind-blowing why these debates still go on, whether it's too much fat that we eat or too much carbs. I mean, you can construct a very, very palatable food that you just cannot stop eating out of anything and I mean look at peanut butter I mean low-carb people the which I was a low-carb zealot some time ago I mean almond butter or peanut butter beautiful low-carb food impossible to stop eating that's why it actually doesn't make sense to me why peanut butter is a staple in many bodybuilding dieting um, setups like peanut butter is an enormously hyper palatable food exactly if, if you never knew how many calories it has you, you, there's no way for your body to actually like look at that calorie dense food and, and estimate that a tablespoon has an enormous amount of calories, and it's just a tablespoon. I mean, what are we doing with like peanut butter cups? You know, like you could literally uh, fit like uh, like five times more calories compared to an apple and in peanut butter cups in the same amount of volume of food. That that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, one caveat here, uh, it's a very interesting one, is um, if you look at Amish diets from the United States, I mean the Amish population that uh, 
that does uh, it they're completely isolated they're just doing their own thing they're actually one of the um, skinniest people in the United States that it, they do consume a high amount of um, sugar quote-unquote and fat at the same time but their their thing is that they're extremely active so they have an extraordinary amount of meat they have a lot of activity levels going on throughout the day with, with their farming with their things like that so you can actually combat a lot of uh, a lot of these hyperpalatable foods and access to those if you do a lot of exercise at the same time. And I don't mean deliberate exercise, but even non-exercise uh, in a way that you're just more active, right? Yeah. So that can combat some of those effects where you, I mean, naturally, if we would run into a honey, uh, like a large amount of honey, we would overeat on that. So uh, if we're talking a situation of hunter-gatherers, we're, we're opportunistic eaters, right? But in today's environment, we're, we're basically loading ourselves up with 2,000 calories and we're sitting down in a chair for eight hours a day, 10, 15 in some cases, right? So that, that, is, that is one of the also underlying issues here is that lack of activity. And uh, overall, the, the obesity epidemic, I mean, we don't need to overcomplicate things. There's many environmental factors, but if you look at the curve, we're just eating about four or 500 calories extra every day. That, that's it. Yeah. You know, like, we, we don't want to like, where do those calories come from? They come from everything. Like we eat more of everything, just not vegetables, you know, vegetables, <laughs> just not, just not more veggies, but generally we eat more of everything. If you look at their statistics for the United States, I mean, the graph is just going up and we just eat that. That's the fact. And uh, nobody wants to hear this. And uh, I, I had a great conversation with James Krieger about this, um, this recently in Oslo. Um, yeah. I asked him, why do you think people don't think calories matter? You know, like what is going on here? Why don't people admit to themselves that they're eating more and he says it's basic psychology like nobody wants to blame themselves it's something else you know it is something else like it's not my fault that i'm eating more calories it's easier to say it's the government's fault it's the food manufacturer's fault it is someone else's fault and that is why uh with, with nutrition is also difficult to research this for using self-reporting because we have an enormous error rate of how many people like people can't perceive how much they ate and even if they can they will often underreport their um, how much calories they ate and that that's a huge issue because you have a study people will underreport by 50% especially if they're obese you know and, and that that makes the self-reporting studies very difficult to to look at as real data only we I mean if we look at metabolic ward studies that that's a different thing right and those studies I mean clearly shown at least recent ones um, low carb low fat I mean it's pretty much the same outcome uh, if we're looking at the long term, as long as the protein is equated and then the calories are, of course, the same. So, so basically, um, if you know, if we look at the kind of nutritional pyramid that Eric Helms uh, wrote, and then there is like the t bottom layers of the pyramid is like calories, macros. Then I would say that if we're looking at this, like what environmental factors make us overeat, then probably the bottom layers would be var variety palatability and there's a third portion which i don't know if you wanted to address in your series which is availability is that yeah is we're, that... we're i mean we're opportunistic eaters right if you if you look at um like a hunter-gatherer i think hamza tribe is one of the last remaining ones on the planet when when they have food when they when they actually have food when they kill something or when they found something these people eat, uh, I believe someone said like four to five kilos of meat in one sitting or something ridiculous uh, per person nice. or something crazy, right? So uh, they're that little little warrior diet. You know, they're, if they found honey, they're going to eat that honey until they pass out. 
And that, that is simply because what they're looking for is that basic equation. How many calories have I had to spend to find this amount of calories? So they're not going to go into the nature and spend 300 calories walking or, or running to, to catch 200 calories of broccoli. I mean, that wouldn't be an evolutionarily advantageous position to be in. So if you're spending calories, what is going on in our brain is like, how can I spend as little amount, uh, amount of calories as possible to get as maximum amount of calories out of that? And in today's environment, if you have a 7-Eleven right next door, what's going to happen? You know, it takes 20 calories to walk to the 7-Eleven and to buy 2,000 calories for like $2, oh, right? Yeah. And uh, th that is literally the issue, right? That food availability and, uh, as we said, I mean, environmental factors like the food is in your house, you're shooting yourself in the food. And what I see with a lot of people is they underestimate the, the impact of the environment. I mean, if the bowl of cookies on your plate in your, in your kitchen, you're going to eat that bowl of cookies, right? You're going to unconsciously eat that bowl of cookies because you're designing your environment to uh, stimulate overeating. And even with watching TV, I like to use that example is like um, – I actually talked to one. I actually talked to one of my clients. Um, he's like, "Oh man, I have so much time TV, watching TV, right?" And I told him, "Okay, let can you just take a picture of your living room and then send me the picture?" And he took a picture of his living room and sent me the picture. I'm looking at it, and all the chairs, the the couches, and everything is pointing next to that TV, right? Pointing directly into the TV. And I told, I'm telling him, "Okay, what does this environment look like to you? What does this environment tell you?" Like, what's the simple message of this environment? If you enter this room, you're going to watch TV. Like, it, it is like that. I mean, he's, he has set up that environment like that. And how could you combat that? Well, if you just unplug the TV and put it in a closet, and if you truly want to watch TV, like, if you really want to watch it, it takes five minutes to take it out and plug it in and watch it, right? But there's that friction. There's that added friction, which is going to break the, the TV addiction very, very easy because if we need, if you design for laziness, which uh, something that BJ Fogg talks about from, from Stanford, he's really big on this. We just simply have to look at what are we going to do in our lazy state? And believe it or not, that's going to be 80% of the decisions. It, oh, yeah. it's, if you design for laziness, right? So that's what I told him, like just design for laziness and you're going to see. And like he put a book at the same place where the remote would be. <laughs> And in a couple of weeks, he's like, oh, man, I, I don't remember how uh, when I watched TV. Like, I don't remember when last time I watched TV. <laughs> that, that's yeah. literally what happened. Yeah, so, and, and I guess that's why, um, you know, people who have this strategy of, okay, I'm going to eat healthily, but I'm still going to buy this block of chocolate in case I really need it or something. And it's like, you realize you're actually planning for eating that big time. Like, that's you're going to eat that. You know that, right? But some people, like they believe that i don't know I, I to me it's pretty basic psychology but it's easy to get deceived by yeah i mean it, it sounds like we're like oh you need to eat clean you know we're not saying that we're just saying that how can you make this process easier for yourself right there's a balance between like pigging out on 50 different highly palatable foods and and I eat chicken broccoli rice all day six times Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a balance between between that, and I think the balance is is a, is a huge issue and a completely different conversation. Where that dichotomy of black and white, all or nothing, uh, what's happening in our in our world right now is that if the if the solution is not extreme enough, people don't believe it's worse. Like if you tell people, it's literally about just eating in a calorie deficit and and, and 
not killing yourself in the gym, but actually progressing in the amount of weight you're doing, naturally increasing volume and getting enough, getting enough sleep, they're not going to believe you because you're like not the, the uh, complicated high-intensity interval circuit guy who is saying that you need 60 minutes of zero rest between sets and like this enormous like complicated DNA blood type diet uh, because that sounds like oh that could work better than this right that sounds like it's more extreme so it must be better right and we just fall into that mindset often I mean I'm pretty much guilty of this as well you know the more complicated the solution the more appealing it is to me while uh, the, the basic stuff applies you know that that's what we're yeah. trying to say here yeah. Cool. Then, man, are there any other um, big points that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I that I told you before, um, one clever study that I just came across from Brian Monsik and his group is that um, we tend to eat four times more. I mean, we order four times more dessert if we are served in a restaurant by a waiter that is uh, higher BMI than 25, which is kind of an interesting uh, piece of information. Uh, looking at that. In the United States, I believe there was a big scandal with Hooters where they fired waiters that were overweight and they were actually uh, fat shaming them in a way. And I guess if the if the managers knew this piece of information, those waiters would actually bring more business in. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. so it's kind of that um, we're given permission by the environment we live in, right? If all your friends are um, overweight, you're even by according to research, you're 60% more chance to be overweight yourself. Even if those friends live 500 miles away, right? If you just talk about the same things they talk about, it's most likely related to food and in one way or another that the simple mindset will make you read. So one thing to be aware of is just this simple fact that how your environment can affect you and uh, literally trying to be more um, grounded in your own beliefs rather than seeking permission from the environment and seeking to uh, ping the environment for feedback all the time. So what happens with this study is that people literally ping around them and see, okay, there's a lot of overweight people, the waiter's a little bit overweight, and that gives me permission to do that, right? I, I see it happen, it's an example. It's kind of an example of group think, you know, we, we were given permission by the group instead of thinking for ourselves. So just a quick reminder here, I mean, uh, a few other things that can drive overeating. Um, again, Brian Wonsing's study uh, from Cornell on plate size. Uh, it, it's the typical Delabouf illusion, right? If you have a, if you have a small thing in the middle of the circle, and if you have a if you have another thing next to it, it's going to seem like this thing is smaller because it's surrounded by a bigger object, like it just has a bigger border. Uh, the same thing happens with your plate size. So if you have smaller plates, you tend to think that you ate more food. And this is pretty clear based on all the research that I've seen so far. Uh, plate size is a huge issue. Um, another thing is plate color. So the food that you actually want to eat more of, let's say vegetables, you want to have a green bowl because that green is going to mask the size of the bowl and it's going to make you overeat more than that. Mm -hmm. But it, literally if you're eating like let's say a highly palatable pasta or something like that, you actually want to have something that is more of a contrast so it stands out so it feels like you're eating more of that pasta than you actually are, right, on a smaller plate. And I have a couple of examples of photos that, uh, that literally, I mean, you're looking at the portion size, you can't believe that it's the same. Like, you can't believe that it's the same amount of food. Like, it, yeah. it doesn't make sense because we're fooled by that illusion. We're literally fooled by that illusion, and um, that can also 
uh, lead to our overeating. Um, one final thing that I'm actually doing some research now is uh, the health halo effect. Um, if we're perceiving a food as organic, uh, diet, uh, low-fat, um, omega-3 signs or something like that, we tend to underestimate how many calories that food has. We tend to overeat more in that food. And not only that, but the one actual funny, really clever study is uh, they gave people a bunch of different desserts. And uh, when they ate the, the dessert that is organic, they uh, told, they, they said to, to a person that, that uh, supposedly wanted to skip exercise that it's more okay to do that than if they, that person didn't eat dessert at all. Right? So it's like if you eat organic, it's, it's so good for you that you can skip gym, it's completely fine, right? It's 100% okay, right? Even if you didn't eat dessert at all, right? In a, in a yeah. scenario where you just literally didn't have any calories, so it would be even more okay to skip the gym. It's just yeah. like, it, it is extremely uh, important to see that some of these things that we're not thinking about, because our food decisions about 226 a day uh, that we make, mainly are based around our environment, is that we have to educate ourselves on this as nobody's actually talking about it. Like nobody's yeah. talking about it. Nobody. Like not the school, not the government, not not the TV, not the companies. Literally, this is like different different world, right? Yeah. I've also heard actually, which is even crazier to me, but I, I've experienced it on myself, which is even crazier, is that if you know that a certain food is low calorie, that you will perceive it as, as less satiating. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a very, very fascinating study. Uh, I, I've, uh, I, I believe that it was, uh, yeah, I, I believe I read that paper. It, it's, it's incredible, right? Yeah. It's our, our mind, um, th there's so much in our mind. I mean, one, one recent one that I posted on, on visualizing eating food can actually mm -hmm. induce that habituation, that sensory specific attack, even if you haven't ate the food. <laughs> like, just visualizing going through the process of eating food actually had people eat a lot less calories afterwards. It's incredible. And, and some mind-blowing stuff, which is something that I'm actually gathering data on, is that you, you are going to feel more hungry if you sit down all day than if you stand all day. Like yeah. literally, with the same amount of food. And you're going to eat less food if you're more active. Hmm. Like you're you're going to feel more fuller from a meal if you're actually active. It, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. It's so counterintuitive. That um, I mean, I can shoot you this paper over if you, if you want to look at it. It is incredible how how much of that makes an impact. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. yeah, and I think and I think another very very important tip for people, especially who are dieting. I mean, and I'm sure you can attest to this, but pretty much every anybody, just be busy, do things, and like distract yourself. I mean, it's. All these things that we shared, these tips are so much more powerful when you have a lifestyle, when your food is like an afterthought. When you're sitting at home around food, always thinking about food, it's very hard to actually trick your brain to eat less. Would you agree? Yeah, it's, it's literally impossible if, uh, if food is, and it's going to become, as you die down, the food, the food is uh, going to become more and more important. You're gonna dream about food. I mean, I, I dreamt about eating pancakes. Literally, I like last time that I cut. Um, I went fairly, fairly low on body fat a couple of months ago. I was, I was obsessed. I was just talking about food. I was thinking about food. I couldn't spend uh, like an hour without spending like five minutes imagining food and things like that. It's just, it's just crazy. 
And uh, if you're in that kind of situation, what, what helps enormously is to have uh, some higher purpose, something to get you in flow state, something that you will really enjoy, even if it's playing, uh, I mean, e I'm saying even if it's playing video games, but things like anything that can get you in, in flow, right? Anything that can get you in, into a situation where you're being very, very productive and you will forget about the food. And I mean, things like um, intermittent fasting are really famous for that is that they, you have the window where, I mean, you have the window where you don't eat anything. And people feel like when they just had that rule for themselves, they're much more productive because they have to stop thinking about food. They didn't mm -hmm. think about food anymore. So the food is off the, off the table. You know, it's done. It's not, not about the food right now. They felt that they're more productive. Otherwise, they're just planning when the next meal is. And if you ate six, seven meals a day, like I did back in uh, I don't know, 2011 when I first uh, kind of got introduced to the, to the whole uh, fitness thing uh, back 2010, I was eating seven meals a day, and my whole day would be like, okay, when's the next meal? When is the next meal? When is the next dopamine hit? Like, when is the next instant gratification coming? Because I know the meal is going to make me feel better. Like, we know that if we eat food, we're going to get that temporary relief, you know, that little relief that you get. And um, as much as you uh, can fight it, it's much better to actually replace it, same as any other bad habit. Just replace instead of trying to eliminate, and you're going to be much, much more successful with that. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and also like this will also teach you like to distinguish between actual hunger and just wanting to eat such a big difference. <laughs> a lot of a lot of these patterns that we fell into. I mean, there's even research in that, that, that your ghrelin pattern, that you basically let you eat. You can literally condition yourself to expect that meal at that exact time. A lot of um, research from um, a circadian rhythm that is telling us basically you can get used to eating a certain meal pattern and your mind and your body will actually expect the food and will even start putting in some physiological stuff in the in process if you've conditioned yourself to eat let's say at noon at 11:30 you're you're starting to experience hunger all of a sudden because you just conditioned yeah. yourself at that point and it, it's just that your your body is ready you know it's ready it knows that the food is going to come so a lot of these um, things, I guess, I got introduced by with intermittent fasting and that research because I thought that um, that oh, there, there's no way I could survive eating three meals a day. There's no way, you know, I would be I would die of hunger. And once you do intermittent fasting for about a month, I was like, okay, I'm not dying. What's going on here? Right, why am I not hungry in the morning when I used to be hungry all the time? And then I realized, okay, you can actually change and condition yourself into these patterns, which makes sense. Everything that we just talked about makes evolutionary sense because it adds to our survival. And, and all the concepts um, that we think that are rigid are actually much more adaptable. In, in any research study, if you look at most of the stuff that, that I look at, and I just try to look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, would this make sense if I was in a, in a savanna being chased by a lion and hungry right now? Would this make sense? And it actually puts things in a really decent perspective if you're looking at research because a lot of things that we are discovering right now are just our natural way of adapting to an environment. And that is, that is super, super powerful once you uh, kind of look at it from, from that uh, perspective. Right. Yeah, I, I guess that's where the whole paleo uh, philosophy makes sense or have, have some credence actually. 
All right, man. Um, I, I, I don't want to keep you up for longer because we've been going for quite a long time. I guess my final question to you, and, and I almost feel like I should get, get you back at some point because you have so much valuable stuff uh, in your mind. But you mentioned that you're big on habits and habitary change. So let's take this whole thing as a framework. So many people, I, I will say this, if you manage to create a lifestyle for yourself when you're, you have a six pack that you maintain while not being food obsessed, it's likely that you will become successful in other areas of your life as well. It's not because of the six pack, it's because of the things you will have to master to get to that level. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And, and so, so what would you say are the biggest um, steps that someone can take to transform these bad habits, being obsessed about food, unmindful or mindless eating, and to become more mindful and to replace bad habits with more productive and healthier habits? Well, here's the thing, right? Changing yourself is a huge topic. Like changing yourself in general as a person, it is um, is extremely difficult, right? And we know that. Uh, how would you build a new habit? I mean, literally, it's very simple. Understand how habits work. There's a cue, there's an action, there's a reward. And then just as you repeat that many times, you will fall into a habit. Simple example, checking your Facebook, right? You have a cue, which is that red little thing. You click on it. That is your action. You get a little reward because you get a little dopamine hit because you know what's going on, right? You kind of satisfy your curiosity. So once you analyze and see, okay, what are some of the bad habits and with my life? And then you see, okay, what are the cues that are triggering these things? Like what is actually triggering that bad habit? Like what is, the tr what is triggering smoking? What is triggering me overeating? Is it emotional? Is it this or that? Then you can uh, see what the benefit from that is. Like what are you getting from that? If you're eating, well, what does that make, make you feel happier, make you feel more fulfilled, change your state, and you just change your state by eating, which is often a case when you're bored, you eat and you change your state, you're a little bit more engaged, right? Then you can look at it, well, what else can I do to change my state? What else can I do to make myself better? Like, what, what else can I do, right? What is in my power? If it's playing, uh, I don't know, Tetris on your phone, if you can still do that, it's a much healthier approach to move into for the long run to get out of that negative behavior. And I mean, building habits in general is a huge topic. I mean, habits can take from two to build from a week to six months. There's a huge variance between the complexity of the behavior. Um, one thing to that is the most important thing to understand, um, I think, in habit building is the relationship between uh, skill and motivation. Right? So the more skill you have to perform a certain behavior, the less motivation you need to make that behavior and consistent. Right? And if you have a high level of motivation, you can achieve it like in a very, very complicated behavior even if you don't have a lot of skill. But the thing is that when you try to change something that you haven't done before, you don't have a lot of skill. Right? And a lot of these habits that you will be able to build have to be under the radar of motivation. They have to be so simple that you can make them consistent without relying on motivation. So let's say you have a threshold of motivation. If the habit is 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 very, very difficult, let's say the habit is here, right? And you try to go with that motivation and one day, okay, it hits and you can do it. But the next day motivation goes down and then you can't do it. The next day wait for another wave of motivation to come. Instead, just not lower the behavior to be under the motivation threshold. And then you can actually repeat the behavior. So a great example of this is like, let's say a client comes to me and says, oh, I want to I wanna get ripped. Well, I can tell them, well, okay, five days a week in the gym, 
these are your macros, bam, you know, like here's the whole thing that you have to do. Instead, okay, how many, how many days in the gym are you actually able to do? What's the minimum that you can do consistently? Let's find something that you can do without needed for the motivation because motivation is going is to fluctuate. It's not reliable. And then eventually, once we get that skill up, because once the skill goes up, you don't need the motivation as much, right? So the, there, there's a, a cool graph on this. Uh, it's uh, from BJ Fogg from Stanford and his behavior change model. Literally, as your skill goes up, which will go up as more you do the behavior, like tracking my fitness pal, the less of willpower, less motivation, less these things you need to sustain the habit. So I would say that the, the point is start small and start with small number of changes at once. So you don't want to start more than, I would say the maximum amount of change that you can make is three. And out of those three, I would say one is a big change and two are kind of passive that are kind of uh, not keystone habits, but just one is a big keystone habit, like going to the gym. Because going to the gym, let's say what a keystone habit is, it's automatically going to make you sleep better at night. It's automatically going to make you eat a little bit healthier. It's automatically going to make you feel better. It's automatically going to make you more focused, right? So you're doing all these things without even trying. And you're also getting benefits from exercise. And then in the second and the third habit, you can, let's say, make the third habit uh, being more mindful about food. And let's say the second one, let's say, going to bed a little bit earlier, right? That's that's very simple stuff that you can do, but the exercise part and getting your ass to the gym is actually a lot harder. And this is talking about general population. I mean, if you're talking about someone who is shredded, I mean, a lot of these things don't apply because we have an enormous amount of willpower and we can just do whatever it takes to get to the result. But even in that scenario, you want to you want to look at is it really worth the trade-off from like doing all these things that get me shredded versus like how much am I missing out on my purpose in life? Like, what is my purpose in life? Is it to run around 6% body fat? Is it to actually do something important? And that is a, that is a conflict there between uh, us guys. I mean, when we when you get ripped, we're always thinking, well, what do we do now? You know, isn't that it? You know, is, isn't this the, the end goal? Like, aren't we... Where, where is the applause? <laughs> yeah, like, where are the people? You know, where's the, where's the girls? And, and that's a huge thing is um, if you're not in this journey with a purpose and not and just using the the journey as something to add on a little bit more value to yourself like add improve yourself in one area of your life it, it is really hard to to manage these other things because it's all connected you know because if if you do fitness no matter how good you do it you're still going to miss out on on these healthy habits and healthy lifestyle and behavior changes if you're not doing other things and, and that's that's the problem that's the problem where I see a lot of guys. Like, if you don't need to be productive, you're not going to be productive. You will spend all the day obsessing about food. But it force yourself to be productive. Force yourself to actually do something important. And then you're going to naturally lean more toward finding a balance. Because you, you will have to. There's no other way you can do that. But, yeah, it's a huge, I mean, as I said, I mean, it's building habits and behavior change, it's like a topic that we can uh, literally talk for three hours about. Uh, and and it's, it is the most important, I would say, like, if you look at Eric Helms' pyramid, uh, <laughs> the bottom mm -hmm. is calories, but below calories is actually what you, what you do, like, what's your, what's your behavior, what's your consistent behavior on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's, um, you can know all this, uh, like, the whole pyramid from top to bottom, if your behavior is not uh, in line with what 
was going to move you toward your goal on a consistent basis, you're, you're missing. You're not going to get your goal, regardless of what your knowledge is. That, that's just the way it is. Right. So find purpose, be, find consistency, and start, start small. small. Manage your waves of motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Manage your motivational waves. That, that's a huge one. Yeah. 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 Well, man, that was an amazing closing remark. And I think you've been crazy impressive today, like I thought you would be. So thanks so much for dropping these knowledge bombs. I guess just uh, tell us where can people find you and um, yeah, see you on the internet. Uh, I talk a lot more about this stuff on my channel on YouTube. That's probably the best way you can uh, stay in touch and uh, go more in depth. Uh, a lot of these things that we talked about today, I've uh, either made videos on or will make videos on in the future. There's already about 300 videos at the time of making this uh, interview on my channel. So, so check it out if you like it. Uh, link is going to be somewhere in the description below or somewhere in the comments or whatever. Um, it is going to appeal to a lot of people that are more logical, science-based, and they're truly looking to, as much as cliche it sounds, to become the best version of themselves. Uh, and that is something that um, I, I think that more of us are getting into, which is making me a little bit more happy, at least coming from the fitness world, um, that we're looking more at self-development as well, not just as fitness and not just as getting shredded. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Mario, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Wow. Wow. I told you this will be super interesting, didn't I? There's so much to this stuff, and I really feel like I should put on a follow-up episode where I reflect on some of the stuff we discussed here. But since this episode have gone on for a thousand hours already, I will cut it here. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. There will be an interesting video coming up very soon where I will be reviewing the Bayesian PT course of Menno Henselmans that I have taken not too long ago with a fellow course member. So that should be informative for many of you. So, all right, uh, subscribe. Did I mention that already? Of course I did. So, see you all soon.